All right, if you would, please turn the Bible to Amos chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Black Pew Bible there, page 847. This is the first Sunday in August, which means summer's almost over. School's about to start back. And it's time for all of us to be focused and refocus, recalibrate, do whatever we need to do. And I'm going to tell you here today that there is truly, no matter why you're not focused, there is no better way to refocus any aspect of your life than through God's Word. Whether it be health, whether it be mental, whether it be personal, family, friendship, work ethic, exercise, money management, diet, whatever it is that you need to refocus on, God's word will drive you to it. And so I'm thankful to be a part of a church that understands that and desires that. And here we are at Amos chapter 7. This is our third and final sermon in the book of Amos, and I've been waiting. You know, these, these minor prophets are very redundant. You can turn to any of them and see that God is telling his people, the nation of Israel, that they have turned their back on God, they've rebelled against him, and so he sends a prophet to say something to them, and it is, hey, you have rejected me, you need to turn back. They don't really turn back, and so God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a new work in you, a new covenant work. I will change your hearts and create a people that love me. That's the message of the minor prophets, and we see this in Amos, but we have not seen it much in Amos. I've had to keep pointing you all toward uh, later passages in Amos. And so here we are at chapter 7 through 9, and we're going to see that. The first week, I told you from the first couple chapters that the Lord roars. We see God uh, being described as a, in, a, in a metaphor as a lion. His voice roars, and he tells them that judgment is coming, for you are wrong. His roaring was at the nations. His roaring was at his people, and his roaring was unmatched. Nobody can roar like God can roar. Last week, I showed you that the Lord deals with us. He wants, in his roaring at us, he wants to make you know this is my voice, not somebody else's expectation. This is God's message to you. And what he is saying is that you need to return to me. We saw last week, time after time after time, he said, yet you would not return to me, yet you would not return to me, yet you would not return to me. For it is the call of God for you to return back to God or turn to God. He wants us to do that. Well, here we are now. At the end of Amos, and we're going to look at chapters 7 through 9. For time's sake, I want to jump right into it. I want to give you three points today. The calling brings a message. Number two, the message brings confrontation. Hope you all are ready for that one. Number three, the confrontation brings restoration. I hope you're ready today to see God's message and to hear God's word because it's, it's, it's a really good one here at the end of Amos. Number one, the calling brings a message. Number two, the message brings confrontation. And number three, the confrontation brings restoration. The calling brings a message. Chapter seven begins with God speaking through Amos as he often does. And Amos is wanting God uh, to not 
bring the judgment yet. He's saying that they will not be able to handle it. They will not be able to stand against it. And of course, nobody can stand against the judgment of God except those who are found in his son, the Savior, Jesus. Nobody can. And Amos is talking about that. And you get to chapter 7, verse 7. God brings up this idea of a plumb line. If you've ever been in construction or in carpenter work, you may know what a plumb line is. It is the ultimate way to make an absolutely straight line. And with this plumb line, you can measure any other line by it. If you have one that is completely, completely straight, then you put a crooked line up to it and you can tell how crooked it is. God through the mouth of Amos in chapter 7, verse 7, says, This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. Folks, this is... A truthful message from God that you must realize, you must accept, and you must embrace. You cannot fashion or mold God into being the way you are. God wants to mold and fashion you into being the way he he is. God has an absolutely, perfectly straight, without flaw, no error, perfectly straight plumb line of what he is like. He is completely and fully, thoroughly, holy and perfect. Joe is so good at picking these songs that the very first song we sang today was Holy, Holy, Holy. A song that is completely about God and what God is like and he is completely holy. And when God starts talking to Israel about how messed up they are, he doesn't say, yeah, I get it, you know, everybody makes mistakes or whatever. He says, I got a plumb line in which you can measure yourself. If you don't want to see the plumb line, then you can't really tell how wrong the crooked line is. You can't even tell if it's crooked. You ever tried to uh, draw a straight line before and you just take your pencil and you do like that and say, man, it looks pretty straight to me. And then the next person's is a little bit more crooked. You're like, that looks pretty straight to me. If you were to put it up beside something that is completely, absolutely straight like a plumb line, then and only then can you see how not straight it is. If we want to remove God and his message and his, his holiness from us, then how in the world might we be able to see whether we are right with God or whether we are far from God or how far away from God we are. If God wants to describe himself as straight as a plumb line, then how else might you see how far away you are from him unless you can see how straight his plumb line is? This first six chapters in Amos, God is telling Israel that you are so far away from me. You don't love me, you don't know me, you don't obey me. Nothing about you resembles me. And they're not sure if they believe that. And God says, Amos, tell them that I have a plumb line. Y'all, the plumb line of God is his holiness, which we understand through his law. God is completely good and right and true and perfect. And if you want to see that, you have to look to him. If you don't know what straight is, 
you will find yourself calling something crooked straight. If you don't know what God's like, you will find yourself calling something ungodly, godly. You'll find yourself calling something not good, good. So God has a plumb line. This is in keeping with his message. But my first point is that the calling brings a message. And so here's what I mean. Amos is saying this to the people of Israel. Hey, there's a plumb line. You can measure yourself why I'm telling you that you're not near God. And then this happens. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah the priest, notice that he's a priest. And without you knowing much at all, you know that priest is a religious position. So this guy should be representing God. He sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos, right? That's why I'm talking about the calling. The calling that God put on Amos' life for him to be a prophet, for him to be the voice. I love this. He says, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. You remember whose words Amos' words are, right? He's a prophet. Amos only speaks what God tells him to speak. When Amos speaks, it is thus says the Lord. When Amos talks, he is saying what God wants them to hear. And here we see that there is a big problem here because the priest goes to the king and tells, listen, and tells the king that the prophet is saying things against you. I don't want to get too up in our faces today, but what we have here is a religious man, a supposed man of God, siding with the political man about what God is saying wrong. The religious man, the priest, is siding with the political man about what God's message is wrong, about how God's message is wrong, about how God's words are wrong. And he even says, the land is not able to bear his words. And then he quotes him and says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. I realize that you may not like hearing somebody say that about you, but if you are going against God and God's message says, either stop going against me or I'm going to kill you, and you say, I'm going to keep going against you, you and God says, okay, I'm going to kill you. Y'all, that is God's message. And you don't ever have the option to say, well, then we're just going to ignore his message or we're just going to go against his message. You can't do that with God. God is God. And yet the priest, connecting now with the king, says this. And so look what he says next, verse 12. This is why I said the calling brings a message. Amaziah said to Amos, oh, seer, Look at this. Go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. God called Amos to be this prophet, right? God called him to be this prophet. He tells us that in the very beginning, that he was a farmer, he was a, he was a shepherd, he was not in this profession. God called him, he was obedient, and now he's going to tell them what God wants them to know, and they don't like it. And they have come and they've said, hey, listen, guy, you go back to Judah, you can do work there, you can prophesy there, but get away from here. Flee from here, and we don't want to hear it ever again. This is the king's place. This is the king's kingdom, and we don't want to hear it here. My first point today is that calling brings a message. We need to be crystal clear 
is if God has called you to be a follower of Jesus, and you are one, that your commitment to Jesus includes with it the message of Jesus. If you're trying to be a part of the church and not a part of the church's message, you're not a part of the church. If you're trying to connect yourself to God, but disconnect yourself from God's message, you are not connected to God. The calling to serve God brings with it God's message. You can't have Amos the prophet without God's voice. You can't have that. And so once they started getting the message from God, they wanted him to leave. They wanted him to get away. Now remember what his message was. You guys are wrong. Y'all are far from God. You are in trouble. He's sending judgment. There is a plumb line to show you how great God is, how true God is, and how far you are. But the calling brings a message. So they tell him to get away. How common is that? Do you have any friends that say, I don't want to hear it? Do you have any people in your life that say, I I don't believe the Bible? I don't believe the word of God. I don't think that's the word of God. I don't think God speaks. Can I remind you here today that the calling brings a message. To be called by God, to know God, is to embrace his message and therefore communicate his message as he opens door, as we speak the truth in love, as we have laid down our lives. But it gets so much better. Look at verse 12. Sorry, verse 14. So they tell him to leave. They say, flee, eat somewhere else, prophesy somewhere else, but never again hear. You see that in verse 13. Never again hear, they say. And thank goodness that a true calling will give you the support. If you don't know that yet, and whatever God's calling you to do, then be encouraged here today. If God has called you to it, that he will see you through it. If God has called you to it, and it looks like it's not going to happen, trust him and see what he does with it. I sure hope that Marcus and Rachel Lehman, who are now about halfway through all of their fundraising, to go to a place that does not have the Bible, I hope that they understand fully that if God has called them to this, then keep writing that calling and see how he provides for you. Because Amos understands this, Marcus and Rachel. Verse 14, Amos speaks up and says back to the priest who is speaking for the king who just said, get out of here with that message. And Amos says this, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman, and I was a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Don't you love a testimony? Don't you love it when somebody says, hey, you got a misunderstanding here. Because you so misunderstand God, you misunderstand me. Because you so misunderstand God, you misunderstand calling. And since you don't understand calling, you don't understand me. Amos says, let me tell you something, uh, priest. He says, I was not a prophet. I I didn't grow up in the farm system where everybody just turns out this way. This isn't my dad raised horses, so I raised horses. This isn't my dad's a farmer, so I'm a farmer. This isn't that system. I was not a prophet. And then he even says, I wasn't even a prophet's son. 
He says, I want you to know, I was a herdsman. I was a dresser of sycamore fig. This wasn't even on my radar. I had not even been considering doing this. It wasn't my choice to come and talk to you. But, and that's a big but, the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. God called Amos to be a prophet, to go somewhere and tell those people what God said, and Amos did it. And the opposition of them, the king saying, get out of here, the priest saying, get out of here, they saying, we don't like your message, they saying, whatever they wanted to say, you're not welcome here, don't ever prophesy here again, there's a better place where you can go. No matter what they said to them, did not stop him from saying, but God called me to do this. You cannot separate the calling from the message. Imagine if Amos would have said, okay, I won't preach anymore, but I'll just keep hanging out here with y'all. I mean, I like this town. Will y'all still be nice to me? Can we still be friends? Can I still try to help the community or, or move for some social effort? Not at all. God called me to do this. The priests in this town may not like it, and the kings in this town may not like it, but God called me to do it, and so here goes nothing. The calling brings a message. I hope we understand this with our fellowship of Christian athletes, and I'm so thankful for Brian yesterday and that we do. We love sports, and we want to help out with sports all day long, but the reason why we want to help out with sports is because we want them to know Jesus, and sports becomes an open door to tell them about Jesus. As soon as it becomes about balls and sports and Gatorades and coaches, then we don't want to be involved with it. And we like those things, but we are about the message of Jesus. That's the only way people are going to find life. And the calling brings a message. I loved, and I'm not exactly sure why she was choking up, but I loved hearing Mackenzie say the two things that I love to do. Medical work, she's in nursing school, and serving the Lord in ministry. She feels like God has called her to be a nurse. And she felt so overjoyed to say, a nurse with missions, perfect fit for me. This is what God wants me to do. The calling brings with it a message. And Amos understands this so well. They even try to reject him. He starts talking all that holiness of God, all that plumb line, all that straight versus crooked, all that you're far from God, all that sin talk. And they're like, no, 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 never again here. And Amos says, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not in this because my message is so likable. I'm not in this because the town's so great. I'm not in this because everybody's voting for me to be next in line. I'm not in this because that's what I grew up to be. I'm not in this because of what my dad wanted me to be. I was a shepherd. I was a farmer. But God called me. The calling brings the message. We could go on and on with the application for that, but let me say one more. If you have any children in your life, God has called you point them to him. That's not an optional calling. Whether they're your children or somebody else's children or just the children down the street, if they are in your life, God has called you to point them to him. Teach them forgiveness. Teach them to pray. Teach them the importance of being in church and submitting to the word of God. Teach them the truth. Teach them that Jesus died on the cross to show that God loves them more than anybody ever will. Teach them that if we turn to God, he will accept us. The calling brings a message. 
And Amos understood that. But the calling bringing a message only moves us further into heaviness. For the second point is the message brings confrontation. You already see the confrontation that Amaziah the priest speaks up and says, go somewhere else. The king doesn't like it. I don't like it. We don't like it. We don't like your message here. So there's confrontation. What has happened is God is confronting ungodly lives. And since he has confronted them, and he's telling them that judgment's coming, he's telling them that they're wrong, he's telling them that they don't measure up to it, there's a confrontation. At the end of verse 15, after Amos has just given us his calling and his testimony, right after they just said, never again prophesy here, look at verse 16. Amos says, now therefore hear the word of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's the calling of God. The priests don't really like me preaching and the king doesn't really like me preaching, but God told me to preach. So, now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and you say, do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. They don't want God They are rejecting God, and so God will punish. This is certainly a message that's frowned upon. You can see why so many people are saying, don't say that anymore. But the Bible has been telling us from the beginning, folks, that when God starts talking that way, you don't get away from him, you run to him. We know this father's heart. When I get loud at my kids and I say, listen here, stop right there and come here, they shouldn't run and hide. If they're running and hiding from me, it means I'm too heavy on that mean side and I'm not actually a father anymore. When I'm as mad as I could possibly be or as disciplined to them as I could possibly be, the end game or the goal of that is still, come here. Let me pick you up and hug you and tell you that I love you and kiss you. And here's why I'm upset with you. But I love you. That is how God is. He's saying this to them, not so they will run and ruin their lives doing what they want and doing what they think they can do without him because they can't. But he is saying this to them so they would come back to them and understand and have life and find purpose and for it to make sense and to have love and grace and forgiveness and peace and all of those things which only come from God. So when they want him to stop talking, in their mind they think it would be so much better if these Christian people weren't around. If Amos wasn't here, our town would be so much better. And listen, folks, there are people in Fairdale who think if First Baptist Fairdale wasn't there or Josh Green wasn't there, things would be a lot better. There are people that are supposed to be members of our congregation that wish that they did not know us. Because they are running so far and so hard away from God that they don't want God to tell them anything. And in their mind, they're thinking, if those people weren't around, if they would just die off or shut up or lose their Bibles or something like that, my life would be so much better. But listen, it won't. And if you've lived long enough, you know that it won't. And our teenagers are learning right now, what I think works doesn't work. 
And us adults that have lived for a while are realizing we don't know what works. Listen, folks, the only thing that works is turning back to God. And even that doesn't fix the circumstances. It just fixes our heart and peace and presence inside the circumstances. God's way is the best way, and God's way is the only way that works. And so when God's message starts telling them, y'all are in trouble, you need to return back, what they should do is return back. But we're so sinful and our hearts are so hard, they don't get that, so they start telling Amos to get away. Don't preach here anymore. It's bad. It's confrontation. God confronts ungodliness. And they really don't like him. They say stop preaching. He keeps preaching. They say never again. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord. And it gets really bad. And they still don't listen. So turn over to chapter 8, verse 11. Look at this. And I've studied and I've studied and I've studied, but it's hard to grasp this right here, guys. Chapter 8, verse 11 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Look at this. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Church, there's nothing stronger that God can do to us than to remove his truth from us, remove his ways from us, remove his word from us. If you don't realize the huge, heavy, foundational, rock-silent impact of God's word, the whole earth has been set up on the truth of the word of God. Proverbs say that by God's wisdom, he created the heavens. By his understanding, he established it. Right and wrong was determined by God, and God delivered it to us. Good and bad was determined by God, and God delivered it to us. When people want God to go away, and God's word to go away, they don't really know what they're asking for. And when they reject him to such and such a point that he says a famine is now coming on you, not of food and water, that wouldn't be that bad. Listen to that. Not of food and water. A food and water famine wouldn't be that bad. For in your suffering of thirst and in your suffering of hunger, you could still cling to truth. But God is going to send a famine on them where they can't find the truth. They can't find his word. Folks, this is to be a wake-up call to us in our attitude toward God and his ways and his truth. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted 
after he came out of fasting 40 days in the desert. And the first temptation that comes to him, the Bible says that he is very hungry. And the first temptation that comes to him by way of the devil is take these stones and make it into bread and you can eat it. Jesus has the power to do that. Do you remember what Jesus' answer was? 40 days without food. I'm as hungry as can be. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm going to guess that none of you all have fasted for 40 days. You may have, but I'm going to think probably not. Do you know how hungry you would be after 40 days? And yet Jesus, with the ability to eat bread, says more than I need that bread. I need the word of God. Do you remember in the book of Hebrews, which we've been studying midweek, where writing to the the Christian people, the author of Hebrews takes them to task. Listen to this. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It is a reproach against the Christians and people of God for us to say that we believe the word of God, but to neglect the word of God. It is a a reproach to us. It is not good for us to be people of the book, but don't know the book. We see this here by way of God saying the ultimate discipline he could do to them would be to take their word away or take his word away from them. The message brings confrontation. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your word. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.65 says, Great peace have those who love your law, O God. It is a characteristic of those who know God that we are committed to his word. We love it. Whether it's heavy on us or sweet to us, we want it. We want to hear it. It is our commitment. It is our practice. It is our devotion that we would be in church hearing the word of God, that we would read it. Even though we know it brings confrontation. For we know, listen, we know that confrontation isn't always a bad thing. Don't you know this? Don't you know that some things need to be confronted? Don't you know that when somebody is going in the wrong direction, you say, hey, hey, hey man, don't go that way. What brings confrontation in our lives, our lives that are going the wrong way? The Word of God. So at some place, at some point, we have to welcome confrontation. Have you ever said to somebody, hey, we we need to talk about that? The message brings confrontation. God is going to bring a famine where he doesn't give them his word. What would happen to Faraday if God took away his word? 
What would happen to your home if God took away his word? May we be those who say his word is our foundation. May we love that passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says those who build their house on the rock are the ones who build their house on my word. May we welcome confrontation to point out to us all of our ungodly ways and to point us toward him. May we be those who say, I need forgiveness. May God show me where forgiveness is found. The calling brings a message. Number two, the message brings confrontation. But number three, finally, the confrontation brings restoration. At the end of chapter 8, verse 13, right after that famine is announced, he says, In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Even the sharpest and the strongest, the most fit, the most healthy are going to give out, for you cannot live without God. Then you get to chapter 9, we're to the final chapter of the book of Amos, and we're starting to wrap it up now. And God says destruction is coming. He's going to end the book with they will be destroyed. He starts passing out all of that. Verse 4, at the end of it, it says, And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Punishment is coming. Verse 8 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of of Jacob declares the Lord. There's a glimpse of hope there. And then you get over to verse 11 and you have the key part of the whole book of Amos. If you're enjoying this minor prophet series that we're doing, we've already done Hosea and Joel and now Amos, you need to know what are the key passages in these books. It is right here, 9, 11, and 12, that is the key to all of Amos. If you have a pen or a highlighter, you need to circle that and make sure anytime you ever discuss Amos, you make sure 11 and 12 is hit. Please don't be that street preacher that only knows hammer and slap and judgment and doesn't know the hope that comes with God's message. Don't be that way. Don't talk about Amos and all this destruction if you're going to skip verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. That's why it's so important. I'm thinking about the person that's only been here the last two weeks, and then they're not here today. In chapter, 11, look, in chapter 9, verse 11, look what God says through Amos in the midst of the destruction talk. In that day. What day? The day of destruction. In that day... I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom, Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. In the midst of the confrontation, God brings restoration. In the midst of dealing with them, being very particular about how far they are away from the straight holiness of God, in pointing out what sin is, which is a conversation that has to be had, he brings back to them how good God is, and he says, I will restore them. Just notice these words, I will raise up, I will repair, I will raise up, I will rebuild. This is what God is wanting to do with the people who are broken down. He is going to bring restoration here. In that day, God will restore. In the book of Amos, you have God pointing out, like all the minor prophets do, that you've sinned, you're far from God, you don't reflect God. 
And God sees it, you need to turn back, but they don't turn back, you need to turn back, but they don't turn back. That cycle goes on and on and on. And so God says, I'm going to destroy. But then in the midst of his punishing them, there is this restoring. So listen to me, you need to understand this. This doesn't mean he's not punishing them. Here's what this means. In the midst of him punishing all of them, some of them will return back to him. That word there, remnant, that you see in verse 12 is describing of a people that in the midst of God punishing who will return back to God. That God will pour his grace on and they will say, we don't want to go this way. We are turning back to God. We'll say, God, forgive us of our sins. God, restore us and they will. This does not mean that there is not a punishment and a judgment coming. The same thing goes for the world today. God's love, his reckless love, his overwhelming love does not mean that a judgment and punishment is not coming for a judgment and punishment is coming but anybody can escape that judgment and turn back to him. In the midst of the judgment coming you can be restored or built up. That's what this is. And let me show you the perfect picture of it. Turn back and we'll finish here to Acts chapter 15. I have intentionally, if you've been here three weeks in a row, you have noticed that we have read this same passage every single week in Acts 15 as we're preaching through Amos. The first week, we read Acts 15, 1 through 11. Then last week, we read Acts 15, 12 to 21. And now that today, we read all of it, Acts 15, 1 through 21, because it is in Acts chapter 15 that it quotes this passage in Amos. Amos 9, 11 and 12 is what they quote here in Acts chapter 15. So I want you please, please, please pay close attention and follow along with me what's happening. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's that question that you've, you've, you've asked a hundred times. How are people in the Old Testament saved? But what's happening here is it's being answered in reverse. It's not saying how are the Jews saved, it's saying how are the Gentiles saved, which is crazy for us to think about because we always ask it the other direction. We're like, we know how Gentiles are saved, for we are Gentiles. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone. He died on the cross for us. He loves us. If we believe, we'll be saved. So how is a Jew saved? But they're Jews. They know how they're saved. And so they're saying, how are those Gentiles saved? And somebody started saying that somebody that's not Jewish at all has to, the Pharisees, they started saying they have to become a Jew. They have to get into the Old Testament, start figuring out the Old Testament law, and start keeping that. That's the conversation that's happening here. Verse 2, follow along, please. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that means it was a big one, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So get this. The missionaries, Paul and Barnabas the church leaders, the elders, even the apostles and the Pharisees say, well, we need to go up there and talk it out. We need to get everybody together that knows anything about gospel ministry together, and we need to talk about how are people saved. How are Old Testament people saved? How are Jews saved? And how are Gentiles saved? We need to talk about it. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are saying, I'm telling y'all, God is saving these people. That's what's happening. And some of them doubt it because they didn't become Jewish. And brought great joy to all the brothers. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they get there, and they're like, okay, tell us what happened. And they say, okay, we'll tell you what happened. God is working. Verse 5. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, look at this, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Is that true? If a Gentile, knowing nothing about Judaism, comes to faith in Christ, do they need to become a Jew? That's the very question that was happening here about 2,000 years ago in the first century, and now the book of Acts is telling us about it. It's awesome. This is the same thing you need to talk about when we're down at the high school and we say, hey, if one of these Muslim kids wants to become a Christian, what do they need to do? Hey, I got some friends that are Jewish, and they go, they go to their synagogue, and they live right here in Louisville, Jewish friends. If they want to become a Christian, what do they need to do? This is this thing. And they're talking about it here. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, okay, a big deal, Peter stood up and said to them, now this is awesome if you're following along, because it was Paul and Barnabas saying it, so now here's an apostle, Peter. He stood up and he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So here's the first thing he says. We know God likes to save Gentiles. God is not strictly Jewish. God is for all people. I don't care where they're from or what religion they come from. They can turn from that and believe on God, turn from their sins, and become a child of God. We know that. That's what he says. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He's saying the same thing. Verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them. I hope you underline that. No distinction between the apostle Paul, Peter, and the Gentiles that know nothing of the Jewish way. No distinction in God's eyes. Having cleansed their hearts by if you or your church or your old church or your friends or your family have ever asked the question, how are people in the Old Testament saved, get into Acts 15 and study and study and study and study. He is giving you the answer here. Peter just said that the Gentiles are saved, their hearts are cleansed by faith the same way mine was. Peter's a good preacher, y'all. Verse 10, now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test? He says asking this question or proposing that they need to become Jewish is testing God by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He says that trying to be Jewish to earn your salvation is not even something that us Jews can do. Following the law of God and thinking that obedience and being a good person is going to get me right doesn't even work for us Jews, and now you're trying to tell a Gentile to do it. You sound just like a Pharisee, he's saying. It can't save you, and you're trying to get it to save them. Peter's awesome. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Underline this. But we believe, yes we do, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Africa, Ecuador, China, Mexico, anywhere you can think of, prison, streets, slums, Fairdale, trailer parks, rich neighborhoods, anywhere you're thinking of, 
The only way anybody anywhere gets right with God is when they know that God loves them so much that in his grace he sent his very own son, sinless and holy, to die on the cross for you. And when he shed his blood, his blood will wash away the sins of anybody who will return to him, not run scared, not hide, not say, get away from us, get rid of your message, don't preach to me, I don't want to hear it, your word's not true, not that, but return to God and say, God, you love me. Oh, God, forgive me of my sins. God, accept me. God, receive me back. And the Bible says because of Jesus, he will. Peter starts preaching the gospel to them. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. Peter had just preached to them the love of God in a short little debate about how sweet the Savior Jesus is. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, so now another guy speaks up, and James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he's talking about Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. You know what you call that? A remnant. A people that God is bringing to himself. And with this, look at this. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. James speaks up and says, guys, Paul and Barnabas are right. God is saving He's changing hearts and lives. Peter speaks up and says, yes, he is. James speaks up and says, guys, this is what God said he was going to do. His whole word has been saying this. His message brought by the people will bring confrontation, but it will bring restoration. This is what God he will said he do. And then he quotes the prophets. Which one? Amos 9, 11, and 12, just as it is written, after this, I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In the midst of God's punishing judgment message. He is doing a work in people everywhere where he turns them into his remnant and they seek the Lord. I don't care if Fairdale announced no more preachers, no more Bible, no more church. Get out of here. There's a town right over there called Oklahoma or one right over there called Valley. You can go there and do it, but don't preach here anymore. God has done such a work in my heart and I pray in your heart that we will still seek the Lord. I don't care what they say about God or what we should do about God. We know what God says. We know what God's called us to. We know what his message is we know there's going to be confrontation but God's word is true and he is bringing now in us life real life is happening in us in South Louisville in Fairdale around us that says we will seek the Lord <coughs> this loving of God and his word is not something that I've just figured out I want to tell you right now I didn't grow up this way I'm gonna tell you right now my dad didn't raise me this way I was a shepherd I was a farmer and God called us to seek him and so guess what we're doing on Sunday morning even after my family drove all day yesterday and got back late in the night guess what we're doing this Sunday morning seeking the Lord why because he is working in us 
And Acts chapter 15 says that Amos 9 says that's what God does. He makes people that love him. And I hope that's you. I hope that what you're feeling here today is that's what he's doing in me. That's my heart. Now, for just one more little side note, look at what they say next. And this is going to be a challenge to you. Verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, or here's what I think, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, they don't have to become Jewish. But look at this next verse. And I, I, I'm going to really get preaching to you all right here, verse 20. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from the blood. For from ancient generations, Moses, that is the law, that's the plumb line of God, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now listen up, church, we're almost done. He says we should not trouble them, so then he says here's what we should do. Talk to them about all the things they shouldn't be doing, talking about living for idols and worldly stuff and sexual immorality. So listen, if me and the Word of God troubles you when we start talking about sins that you need to turn from, that's a bad sign. It's not troubling to those who have turned their lives toward God. You know who it's troubling to? The ones who are saying, we don't want to hear it. You know who it's troubling to? The ones that don't think it's wrong. You know who it's troubling to? The ones who have not turned to God. He says, we should not trouble them, but we should tell them about abstaining from things and from sexual morality and from doing this and doing that. For this is what God's plumb line has always taught us. Restoration, being restored, is when you turn to God. And here's why our message is so wide open. Because it's not about how bad you are. It's about how good he is. It's not about how far you are. It's about how near he is. If you will turn to God, he will restore you. Calling brings a message. The message brings confrontation. But the confrontation brings restoration. Church, God is working in and around us. And what his working looks like is him restoring our hearts to him. Do you feel that? Do you love him? Are you turning back to him? Is God working in your heart saying, I want that. I want to be turning back to him. I realize there are wrongs in my life, disobedience in my life, but I want to turn to him. I realize he will forgive that. I realize his message of judgment is only for me if I run from him. And I realize he welcomes me back. It's the first Sunday in August. Let's turn back to God. Father in heaven, thank you the book of Amos. Thank you for Amos's boldness. 
and for the calling to turn back to you, Father. Thank you that in Jesus we can be accepted back to you. May we turn back to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.